The fantastic and flexible new Westport Library presents Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast with me, Trace Burroughs. And me, Migs Burroughs. And our guest today is Mark Yerku. And if you've ever had sleepless nights wondering where you're going to get a one-foot-long Viagra pill or a chariot or uh, a hat made out of a building by Philip Johnson, then... um, We've got the answer for you. It's Mark Yerku, who's an amazing artist, scientist, uh, entrepreneur. Is you self-titled? Yeah. Is that accurately describe what you do? What I mean, you do a lot and everything. Um, where did you? What did you think you were going to be when you were a little kid? Did you have any thoughts of what you were supposed to be? Or you know, as a little kid, um, I'm not sure I even had the idea of being an artist, but uh, I was always interested in designing things and making things, you know. But um, my uh, <clears throat> my interest in art was as an art collector at the age of five. I, I wanted to collect art, but at five, I don't even get an allowance. <laughs> yeah, so, well, you're going to Sotheby's? So I, I figured out that... <laughs> Well, they just had an epiphany. I said, all I have to do is wait for the mailman to show up. Hmm. The stamps oh, oh, on oh, the mail yeah. that came in was my first art collection. Consequently, I became an art collector. But, you know, that that's a very interesting uh, mm. hobby because you learn about history. You learn about art. You learn about uh, the world and and all the things that people think are important in it. Uh, so uh, that was that was a fun thing for me to do as a kid. But then as a kid, I started designing stuff. I wanted to, I saw the, I grew up in New York City, so I watched the street cleaners go by. So I started engineering a different street cleaning machine. But I was, you know, as a kid, I was like, you know, it was kind of like a Rube Goldberg thing, you know, so, but, but uh, then as I got older, I was just gravitated to like, as soon as I could get on the subway by myself, I'd be going to museums and uh, checking things out and, when I was 14, I actually had my first apartment, and I completely covered it in murals that uh, were essentially copies of things I saw at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, and sort of elaboration on that kind of as well. But it was sort of hippie days in those days, you know, I was using fluorescent paints and stuff, lighting with black light and that sort of stuff, but it was a lot of fun. But when I went to school, uh, my interests leaned into science. I just liked the idea of, you know, science on its basis level is, is cause and effect. You learn about the world, and the universe, and everything in it by just trying to understand what's going on. So that became a real, more than a fascination, it became a, a discipline and a study for me right through high school and um, into college. But when I got through to the point where I was working for the chairman of the department in physics in college, doing research in something called nuclear quadrupolar momentum theory. Say that real fast. Oh, that. <laughs> yeah. Three times real fast. <laughs> I aced that course. <laughs> and what, what that was, was the, uh, it was the uh, study of the uh, taking organic uh, compounds and um, doing free induction decays, which is reading them on an oscilloscope as we electrify them with a coil to try to understand how these molecules worked. And then that was sort of the predecessor to uh, what ultimately was the research necessary to create MRI machines. Uh, but this was, this was just basic science that ended up being sort of utilized in that world. But 
I got I, I realized that I could be spending years just writing papers to other scientists saying, don't go down this path because it didn't get me where I was going. <laughs> and, and as a kid, naive kid, that that took had a big impact on me. I just didn't really want to, I wanted to do something that I had a direct impact on, on the world somehow, okay? And um, while I was in college, um, I ended up switching majors in graduate school to fine art sculpture. But that was a disappointment because I went from a highly disciplined subject like physics and chemistry and biology to um, a bunch of, at the time, hippies throwing paint at each other <laughs> when they were stoned. <laughs> and I don't mean to degrade it, but that's how it felt. It was just, I just wanted to kind of characterize that I went from this very strict discipline to this kind of like free-for-all for it. You could do anything you wanted. And I didn't find that educational. There was some very interesting professors that understood what my what my problem was and were directing me in the, in in a good direction. But then I got another problem was is that I had a girlfriend who was working for an art dealer. Um, this is this is sort of a, a lot of art dealers are like private art dealers, and they just invite people to their homes for coffee or or dessert or dinners and display all this art and they try to sell it. And I was very disappointed to find out that this woman was trying to tell me how she does it and that it was all a business. What she would do is she had an, an in to these buildings. Uh, people own these buildings on Fifth Avenue and she'd hang them in the hallways in the hope that these people would start to recognize the artists and want to buy them. She showed me the path of how that worked for her, and it was pretty successful. I won't go into the details or her name at this point, but um, it was all of a sudden it became the same problem I had in the science. I didn't, I, I was too idealistic. I was naive in that, you know, you had to make a business of the art, and that's why most artists aren't businessmen. They just or art and they need someone to go out and be businessmen for them to sell their art. I said, but the business of selling art just kind of disappointed me. So I said, you know, if I'm going to do this for a living, I'm going to start with the right premise. I'm going to make a business out of art. So what I ended up mentoring with this one man, Joe Randall, who's since passed away, who was creating all of these what I thought of as um, storytelling sculpture. And uh, he was commissioned to create these situations, these effects, these props, these things that dis told a story for, in this case, some clients trying to advertise something. Um, I found the problem solving and the learning of how to then take something I didn't know anything about and drill down to putting it into a piece of art form that was recognizable and told the story. I thought that was very interesting. So I quit graduate school and worked for this man part-time while I was in graduate school and then a year later started my own business in Manhattan. And uh, I was shocked at how quickly it caught on. I was, you know, before I knew it, to take, make a long story short, I had a, was interviewing people from all over the world that wanted to work for me. 
and I had a staff of about a, at one point a dozen artists from all the reaches of the planet that had in my mind specializations in different things that I could then orchestrate kind of like a conductor into uh, solving these problems and executing them well my thinking was is that I was doing my clients a service because what we were doing is we were doing more than any one artist could do we had all these interdisciplinary uh, ways of solving the problems and putting them in front of you Consequently, that ended up having to become also a uh, special effects studio. So we were then doing film. Well, the film that comes to the East Coast, anyway. And it just uh, kind of blossomed. And before I knew it, 25 years went by. And I had a grand time. I was, and, but my, my philosophy about the business was I was trying to bring the best artists I could and give them a way to earn a living while they created their art. So that was the fun I was having with my business. I tried to give them the best life I could, and that was the point of the business to me, and uh, was happy to you know, make sure that they could uh, have a nice life and still do their art. So that was the rationale I had for not focusing on creating art of my own brand, but using all of my uh, science skills, which essentially is problem solving, and all of my art skills to create these sculptural effects that told the story. So it felt like I created my own brand of art, mm -hmm. uh, but and I didn't fall into the trap of being an artist that was subject to uh, uh, the whims of fans, uh, the whims of an art dealer, the, you know, that kind of thing, because I saw that happen over and over and over again. When my, the art dealer started telling me, I like this, I like that, but don't do any more of those. I said, mm, yeah, I was a kid. Uh, nah, yeah. That's not cool. That's not for me to do. You know? So that's 25 years in a nutshell. Yeah. I just want to say your stuff is so diverse and cool looking, and I think some of the listeners um, should get a look at some of the stuff that you've done because it is very unique uh so i found this nice article on you f at inc inkct.com and if they there's a little search function at the top um, put in mark uh your q y u r k i w and you'll see some of the stuff that you've done yeah so i'm just sort of run down quickly because I mean, you've done props for movies and, and, and magazines, right? Editorial. So I've, I've covered yeah, every uh, base there yeah, is where yeah. you can deliver a piece of art um, uh, in any f media, in any form, in any way, whether it be ethereal to concrete little props that said something. And this is all before the advent of 3D printing. I mean, you did, I mean, I'm just, I don't, you know, the, uh, well, maybe I do know why I'm fascinated by the Viagra pill, but why don't they do a close-up of a real Viagra pill? Why did you need a, I forget how big it is, a foot long? Well, yeah. t well that was, gosh, that was, had to be 25, 30 years yeah. ago. Um, back then, you didn't have the uh, digital abilities that you have now where you could probably just illustrate mm. as a, oh. in a 3D program with flawlessly a pill. Back then it was, you know, photographers shooting large format and they wanted this thing to be perfect. Um, and they wanted to have the ability to light it with exterior lights to give it shape and form and whatnot. So something as simple as this pill became a project mm -hmm. for the photographer. 
because they were trying to achieve something. They were trying to turn what would be otherwise a very kind of boring thing into something they felt that they created as a piece of photography that was shaded and, cre and oh, yeah, modeled okay. the way they wanted. So, and that the uh, that the shadows would fall into the words if you they were embossed oh, yeah. in something or whatever. I mean, but those were, frankly, to me, uh, boring props, but interesting. Um, ways of solving problems right. and challenges. So you, there's so many, you know, from uh, celebrities to uh, corporations th that you've worked for. Uh, I'm just picking one out that fascinates me, like Eddie Murphy. What did you do that involved? Oh, well, we got a... I'm trying to remember what uh, studio that was for. Um, but Eddie Murphy was making a new movie, and it was about... Uh, I learned later. I didn't even realize it then. It was about advertising, but or or was it the 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 the, uh, the setting was an advertising agency. But what I was asked to do was is that they came up with this one shot where um, um, uh, the singer, um, uh, my goodness, her name just went out of my head. She uh, was going to come crashing down into the World Financial Center in a crate and the crate splits open and out of that she comes riding this chariot oh, made grace out jones. of grace jones thank you oh, yeah. she comes riding out of this mm. box with six muscle-bound guys <laughs> that she's whipping <laughs> and uh, they're running around the atrium in the um world financial center of course this is all before september 11th happened and uh that was kind of fun to do because all of a sudden you know the the qualities that that I enjoyed about doing stuff like that was we had to engineer uh, what a chariot would feel like and how it would work. Uh, we had to uh, engine, do the historical research as to what a Roman chariot might look like and how it might work and the proportions and whatnot. But then we had the uh, fun of then essentially creating it all out of African animal bones. Jeez. Uh, except for the wheels, of course, yeah. you know. Uh, and then adding all these sort of brutalistic elements, this sort of, you know, um, things like exhaust pipes on it <laughs> and stuff like that. So, But it was a blend of creating this kind of fantasy. Uh, and it all starts with her crashing into and out of this box onto the floor of the World Financial Center. And uh, that was fun to do. Um, it was, you know... It, it solved a lot of problems and created an interesting problem. The, the, the hilarious part was is that mostly I, I would keep all my props, except Paramount Pictures, that's what it was, insisted that they had contracted me to own that, to put it in their studios. And uh, mm -hmm. I said, you know, it was too big for me to store easily anyway, so I figured the hell with it. Well, you're iconic, so people can, like, probably something everybody has seen is the, the Statue of Liberty Coat Drive, which you're... Shop uh, created and you know is that huddled Statue of Liberty, um, just from a pedestrian's point of view, uh, question. You know, was that a model? I mean, was there a person in there? Was it a costume? Was it a model? Was it a well? Know, it was. Uh, it was everything. And again, yeah. it's about solving the problems yeah. because it needed to be a um, poster, uh, which means that there was a still photographer that had to shoot a still picture of this thing. So we had uh, a. A, it was a full sculpture, but the sculpture was was actually dressed in a real material, and essentially that's the the body was a um, a rubber dummy inside, and then we just created a headdress 
for it and then sculpted the the um, uh, fabric onto that. Of course, some of it's hard, some of it's soft, but so that it could stay together. But then it also needed to be shot for a TV commercial. Yeah. So in that one, they wanted to put a mime inside to give the Statue of Liberty, who was supposed to be out on the curb freezing, they were they were drifting fake snow around her. So the mime inside had to shudder. So he it was a man, actually, who fit into this costume, essentially. So that was um, uh, how it solved both problems at once. And, uh, you know, these things, I, I wanted to, I, I think I talked to you about it once before, which is why you bring it up. None of these things uh, are solely created by one person. Everything from the ideas onto the execution required teams of people to, to execute. And I was very happy to be working with teams of people. It, 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 added to the creative process everybody had something and a reason to want to shapeshift it or 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 you know be party to what made it special and and so the um all of these projects were just so much fun to have these all these collaborations i mean even my team of artists which most of the time felt like herding cats uh that half of them didn't even speak english half the time um, it was convincing them because most artists think of themselves as you know soul, uh, soul Free people spirits. that, that yeah. only do what they do, yeah. and the world is supposed to understand <laughs> them through their yeah. art. And I, my attitude was completely different. My attitude is more heads together can do things that no one person can do, can send this to a place that art can take on a whole nother proportion. So to me, that was the important part of getting all these people, and, and we'd have these morning meetings to discuss every job, who was going to lead that project, why, what their skill sets were, what other skill sets were needed to, to, to create this thing. And um, that, to me, became an integral part of what made the work so fascinating. Um, I would get all this input from all these artists to every little thing we were doing. And there'd be, you know, discussions and arguments and whatnot. And and, try, and then my job was to herd them all together and say, look, guys, look, here's he, each one of you has identified what your role is here and what your contribution is. Now let's do something together that none of us, one, individually could do. So that was my fun with it at all, at, at all times. Um. Was that looks at your phone? It's <laughs> like a Whoops. cornucopia of sounds. Yeah, yeah, technology. <laughs> well, speaking of, because you're somewhat, well, you don't call yourself that, but of a, I think of a futurist, because you you kind of compile tons of information and and trends, and and you sort of have a sense of where things are going. And um, any any notions of where we're going, where, where technology's going, where the human race will. Well, you know, it, it, it boils Interface down... Interface with technology, like years from now? Yeah, well, let's use technology as a tool and discuss it from that perspective. And let's backtrack a little bit, because I want to give you a fundamental position on this. I sincerely believe that all of this digital world that we're in, all this computerization, these are tools. And what are they tools for? They are tools for people's imagination. It gives them limitless ability to imagine their own futures and create things uh, using all of our, these digital tools and, and interact with the entire rest of the world even simultaneously. 
to me, this is every technological feat in my mind, but even pre-digital, was uh, giving humanity something to work with. So even backtracking that uh, one step back, what are we all here doing? We're all here imagining our own futures. And every time someone comes up with what seems like a new idea, and by the way, my mentor that I spent a year with said there was nothing new under the sun. But given that, each one of us wakes up every day and we imagine something. We, even if it's just what our lunch is going to be, okay? If you use that as a tool, every time somebody puts forth a new idea out there, it intrigues the rest of humanity. And there are people that will follow that and create the solutions, even if they don't exist yet, to move things forward. And this is the tool here that in our lifetimes has the most impact on that. All of a sudden, anybody and the entire world can uh, come up with an idea, put it on the internet, and hundreds, thousands of people can source the problems around creating whatever they imagined and all of a sudden come up with solutions. Now you apply that to anything, apply that to medicine. You know, uh, what do they call it? Crowdsourcing. You know, this is just mind-boggling the, 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 how this, in my mind, brings humanity together. Um, it's an opportunity that we've never had before. The di this digital world is a way of, well, as one, my, one of my favorite ideas that a, another scientist had proposed was is that your brain is nothing but a, a few billion cells that talk to one another. Now, he compared it to what this digital world is bringing to us. Imagine that all of your cell phones are connected. All of a sudden, it, like the cells in a brain, that are synapses that have electrical connections that think through things. You can imagine now broadcasting that on the planet and everybody is getting, getting that and thinking about it. But the utopian view of, of the internet before it came full bloom was that this was going to bring the world together and it, it, it well, seems to have just allowed every nut job on the planet to have a voice uh, that maybe they always had, but only with their uncle at Thanksgiving. And now, you know, they're... Okay, okay. everything can be used for good and bad. Yeah. All right, that's number one. Num number two is is that that all of these things can can take on a life of their own. And, you know, we have the our dark side and we have our light side, okay? And there's going to be fits and starts to all technologies. Think of the first car, okay? Now that with that clunker, you know, would would work when it wanted to, would stop when it didn't work anymore, and we slowly refine that to a machine now. I mean, frankly, my car is two years away from having historical plates. Why? <laughs> because it won't die. Yeah. But a Model T, which probably you could keep running, certainly evolved yeah. into something that's much more reliable, much more efficient, m could take us farther, more comfortably, etc. So just like the internet, this all started in our lifetimes. And it, it's this, you know, every kind of person for every kind of reason has been using it and testing the waters with it. So these bad and good things will all occur. But over time, this will refine itself. 
and and those people that want to use it for good things will mm-hmm. use it for good things. Those people want to use it for bad things will use it for bad things. And to some degree, will as societies and cultures and humanity starts to to use this tool, we'll start to filter this out better and do a better job of making sure that things don't go horribly wrong. Okay. Mm-hmm. But they will always be at the cusp of going wrong. I mean, look at gene technology. You know, all of a sudden we have this ability, but all of a sudden this guy, this one doctor in China has now manipulated genes on these, I think, twins, was it? And everyone's horrified. Terrible things are going to happen. And in one respect, they're all right. And in another respect, this is the process. This is the making the sausage part. (laughs) of the future. Um, so the only thing we really have to worry about is what everyone always does is we don't annihilate ourselves before we get there. Yeah, good <laughs> luck with before the next cool thing but happens. Carl Sagan and a number of other scientists, I use Carl Sagan only because I was back in the 70s, you know, uh, and right through um, uh, Hawkins, who passed away recently, all said the same thing. The only way humanity is going to survive is to continue beyond our expectations here on this planet. We are bound to travel to space. By the way, you can't for uh, 35 million. You can go to the space station. Are you? Have you? Re- did you read about that? And would you go if you had the money in your back pocket? Would you do it? Well, if by the way, 35 thousand dollars a night. Wait, that was yeah. the hotel room out in oh, space for a month. <laughs> for for a night. Well, but well, they they I think they amortize that. You have to be up there for a month. Oh, oh so the cost okay. would yeah. be uh, I see. amortized I didn't, to thirty five thousand. Yeah, yeah. So. But I was very excited about that um, because I made a bet when I was a sixteen year old that I would one day be able to go into space as an individual, and and that was back in yeah. the early seventies when I when I was sixteen or so, something like that, and it's come to pass. Yeah. All of a sudden, I can buy a ticket. You, to go spend a month, if you will, yeah. on the space station. Now, like everything else, it's expensive because you know, the f- it's it's the uh, the first out. You know, it's the it's the uh, big, uh, the expensive part of the first people who get there. But then, what'll happen is if there's interest, that price will drop, and we're going to see 2001: A Space Odyssey in real life. Uh, hopefully, yeah. in my lifetime, because I would love to be Wait, up there. You would, go, you would, okay. yeah. I, Well, you know, but I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. You know, ever since we we saw that first photograph of the big blue marble, Mm -hmm. when when the astronauts first took a picture of our planet, that to me was an epiphany. Mm -hmm. That to me, everyone should experience and understand that fundamentally because all we are is a tiny little marble floating in a vast blackness. I I thought, if nothing else, that that would would bring the, the globe together we'd all get this we'd all be humbled by it and say you know what we're all brothers and sisters on this planet and all of it you know but well, that no. won't happen until we see aliens and people were yeah, that's right that's when everyone will come oh, yeah, together right. the alien <laughs> thing yeah. i did i don't know this is a little off topic but you know what deep face is this technology is real scary where oh. they can take anybody and make them 
I was uh, more the, talk and the mannerisms, the voice and everything. To morph, morph the and I saw animation. A thing, I saw yeah. a thing on yeah. Obama where he just says stuff and was a little rough, but they they can perfect it. Now, what happens if some jerk sends something to like North Korea and says, "We're going to yeah. bomb you," and it's got whoever's or president Trump talking or whatever? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. it's this, it's and then the they react to it without. It's the same issue yeah. that we just discussed. I know. It, you can use these things for good or bad, and these are just tools. Yeah, you know, some jerks could they, they go really bad. Go <laughs> well, we've got a minute and a half to go, Boy. so any parting... Now, you said, I don't know if you want to talk about something else, but you, you once told me, you know, that cars are going to be obsolete. No one's going to own... There's no point in owning a car. Why a car is going to be obsolete? There's no point in... Absolutely. I mean, why? Why, are, why is Uber and Lyft's valuation so high? They're simply waiting till they don't need the drivers because that's when they become valuable. Because then they're buying up all the cars that the manufacturers are making to allow us on our phones in our hands to then call up whatever we need. If you need to take six people to the movies, all of a sudden a car with six people on time will show up at your door to take these six people to the movies. We need a driverless car. Driverless car. No insurance, no. You will will shed all of the Mm. need to own a car anymore. It's just not going to be practical anymore. That makes sense. More importantly, though, what I want to say before this ends is, is that what are we all here for? To imagine. That's what humanity does. We're here to imagine our futures. All of our educations, all of our insights are about leading the way to all of our future. And I can't emphasize that point enough because just like John Lennon said, imagine all the people <laughs> living day to day. Yeah, I agree with all that. And that's what's important. Great. I think the sad thing is a lot of people's Imagination just goes as far as the next episode of the Kardashians. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Sorry sorry for being so negative. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you. Mark your cue. We're uh, we're done. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you.